0: At Northrop Grumman, cybersecurity is at the core of everything we do. Our cyber workforce is defining possible every day in an environment that fosters talent and rewards excellence. Northrop Grumman needs cyber professionals like you to join our team to help defend our nation and its allies. We have openings in Maryland, Northern Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Tampa, Florida. To begin your journey with us, visit our careers webpage, northropgrumman.com forward slash careers.
1: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report sponsored by Northrop Grumman during National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. I'm your host, Vagro Maradian. Later in the program, an update on CMMC and supply chain security. But first, joining us is Dmitry Alperovich, the co-founder and former chief technology officer of cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike, who is now the co-founder and executive chairman of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, and also in what is just amazing news, Uh, He endowed, along with Maureen Hinman, uh, the new Alperovitch Institute for Cybersecurity Studies at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, Dimitri Welcome back to the program and congratulations on the new Institute. Thank you so much for to be with you. Absolute uh, pleasure. Before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And I should point out that Rafael USA sponsored our recent coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual uh, meeting in Washington, D.C. Uh, Dimitri, you've been involved both publicly and behind the scenes in driving U.S. cyber policy. For a very long uh, time, when you you know having left industry, you decided to launch the Silverado Policy Accelerator. Now, uh, the new AI Center uh, at SICE, uh, which is which is very cool. Uh, but a- at the end of the day, despite all of these, you know, sort of Pearl Harbor moments or whatever you want to call them, uh, whether it was uh, the ransomware attacks on meat on oil, right? Americans lining up for gas for the first time in a long time. Nick Shalon's uh, call. Resignation uh, from the Air Force as the Chief Cyber Officer. Excuse me, Chief Software Officer, to protest the slow pace of DoD progress. How how do you rate uh, how the administration, how the Congress, and how industry uh, are doing? Because it seems like the needle is not moving nearly as quickly as it should be. Again, we saw the Senate in 2022 deliberations. um, You know, set aside. Funding for cyber AI and microchips, right? Walk us through how you grade all three of these organizations and how they're doing, and what they should be doing to get better faster.
2: Well, again, thanks for being with you, Vago. Look, uh, I've been in industry a long time, and uh, a lot of that time spent in startups that are uh, moving fast and, and always innovating. And obviously, in comparison, the government is slow as molasses and. Uh, it's it never moves fast enough. But however, you know if you if you look at it in a realistic fashion, uh, we are seeing progress. Um, yes, we all would want that progress to happen a lot faster. But the wheels of government um, sometimes, with good reason, move slowly, and, and that's to be expected. So let, let me try to break things down. So part of the problem that we've had in cyber, the biggest problem is is that we actually have not had a cyber Harbor, cyber nine eleven. Um, and and it's not clear to me that we will ever have one of those events. What we've been experiencing, of course, for two decades has been death by a thousand cuts, uh, where each incident, um, except for maybe a few like the colonial hack earlier this year, have not really risen to the level of a national conversation that gets everyone very excited and wanting to do something about it right away. It's been the slow moving um, snowball of a crisis that um, traditionally has been very hard to get people's attention over uh, here in Washington DC when there's a million crises that are happening all the time ranging from Afghanistan to the current chips supply shortage and, and so many other things. Um, and you know, people in government have only so much time on their hands to, to deal with each issue. So as a result, things are not immediate crises fall by the wayside. Um, So that is the context for why things have moved so slowly on cyber. Uh, But let's look at some of the progress. So, you know, on ransomware, I've written a few op-eds in the last few months in the Washington Post and New York Times talking about the things that need to be done. And while my guidance has not been followed to the T, the government has moved much more aggressively in negotiating with Russia to try to curb uh, criminal activity that's emanating from the Russian state, uh, from from the Russian borders, I should say, um, that we don't believe is is necessarily supported by the state, but is certainly the state turning a blind eye to it. Um, The uh, administration has turned over um, some information to the Russians in the last few months, um, demanding action. We have not yet seen um, any action coming from Russia. So it remains to be seen whether those uh, negotiations will achieve effect. I have argued uh, with my colleague, Matthew Rozhansky of the Wilson Center, that we need to threaten privately uh, severe sanctions against the Russian economy, particularly targeting their oil and gas sector, if they don't cooperate. Um, I don't believe that those threats have um, have been used. And I realize the difficult political um, uh, uh, nature of, of um, issuing those threats, particularly in the current um, crisis, energy crisis that Europe is experiencing where they're completely relying on Russian gas and oil. So putting sanctions in place on that uh, would alienate all of our European allies and probably not doable in in the current atmosphere.
1: Um, I should should also point out to the audience, right, Putin has made abundantly clear that I am your source of energy. So be careful who you piss off. Right. He didn't miss an opportunity to drive that message home.
2: That's right. And, And frankly, he didn't have to do that. Everyone knows that anyway. And uh, it's, it's very clear that Europe has become completely dependent on Russia, uh, in part due to its own misguided energy policies over the last uh, decade. So in some ways, it's been a self-inflicted crisis. But um, nevertheless, um, even outside of the, the Russia doing something, I've argued that we should get more aggressive on our own offensive operations against these groups to try to disrupt them. And there's some signs that, that things are, are moving forward. Um, one of the key groups are Evo that took down the G- JBS meat processor in June with a ransomware attack and also was responsible for the big Kaseya hack that uh, some of your uh, listeners may remember earlier this summer. Um, that group has gone offline claiming that their servers have been hacked. And, and um, while we don't know who might be behind it, there's hope that perhaps um, U.S. And, and its allies are getting more aggressive in offensive campaign um, against against these groups, which won't solve the problem, but will slow them down, will reduce the pace of attacks, and and that's something that's critical. And then, of course, um, Anne Neuberger, the deputy national security advisor for cyber, um, convened a ransomware um, um, a meeting with uh, thirty plus nations last week, where. Um, Uh, I think uh, she she, uh, made a lot of progress in getting countries from all over the planet to start taking this seriously. Uh, Some of these countries have sent deputy ministers and other high-level officials to the summit, um, and they had multiple tracks ranging from disruption, how they can coordinate disruptive actions against ransomware groups, to more aggressive law enforcement, to probably what I think is the most important element. Um, uh, and that is tracking the cryptocurrency transfers that are fueling right. this whole ecosystem. And if you can get that alliance of countries to start really demanding that cryptocurrency exchanges perform KYC, Know Your Customer, and AML, anti-money laundering um, uh, regulations on uh, significant transfers flowing through their systems, you can have a huge effect on ransomware, on money laundering and tax evasion, illicit drug sales, and all sorts of things that cryptocurrency is now uh, enabling. And that would be an enormous uh, victory for um, global governance and, and, uh, and uh, making all of us safer, safer, both in cyberspace and in the material world. So I, th- I think we are seeing significant progress. Again, I would love for the administration to be even more forward leaning, more aggressive and move faster but uh, I have to recognize that they've, um, they've done some great things and, and um, um, things are moving in the right direction. Um, on the uh, legislative front, um, I would say also we've seen tremendous progress. Um, I really have to compliment Mark Montgomery, who is the executive director of the Solarium Commission, uh, probably one of the most successful commissions that we've seen in a generation in terms of the fact that they've been able to achieve. Uh, you know, They put out their report about two years ago now, uh, with certain recommendations of what we should do in cyber. And a huge number of those recommendations have already been implemented in law, almost single-handedly by Mark Montgomery and his team, um, lobbying on the Hill and Congress and in the Senate to get things done um, using sort of the power of the NDA, the National Defense Authorization Act that has to pass each year to shove a lot of their priorities into that bill. So just incredibly effective at empowering CISA, the Cybersecurity Information, uh, Security Agency uh, uh, to, to do more on security of the federal government, creating the, the National Cyber Director Office that is now occupied by Chris Inglis, the Senate confirmed position. Um, and uh, one of the things that they're working on this year is the uh, breach notification law that, that I think has uh, great hopes of passing. You have a couple of bills that uh, are mostly the same, have some, some differences, The differences are mostly tactical. It's a question of uh, how much time does a company have to notify the government? Is it 24 hours, is it 72 hours? Um, And what are the penalties um, that they incur for not notifying? So uh, so, some important issues to to resolve, but I think they're fundamentally resolvable. And um, I'm glad to see that these bills are moving on uh, a bipartisan basis. You have Republicans both in the House and the Senate. Um, they're working with Democrats on this issue and you know in this atmosphere in this town when both sides have very little to agree on um, that's very heartened to see. So, so I'm encouraged that we will see something pass um, that I think is going to be really important because it is critical for the government to see uh, the activities taking place in, in, in the private sector. Um, you know part of the things that I know the government is very frustrated about in my conversation with officials is that on things like ransomware for example, while they're making, a lot of headway on a variety of different issues. They have no way to measure that impact. They have no idea whether ransomware attacks are increasing or decreasing. They're sort of dependent on anecdotal evidence that they read about from vendors and, and there's no holistic reporting on that. Um, so not, they don't even know if, if their policies are working or not. Um, and um, um, that's something that has to change when you look at attacks like Solar Winds, where we learn about them only because FireEye, Kevin Mandia, uh, decided to come forward voluntarily right. even though he didn't have to and announce that breach um, that has to change right um, the companies should not be able to keep that information quiet from the government particularly when it concerns these strategic national security issues so so i'm very hopeful that we'll move forward so on balance i would say yes we're moving slowly but we're moving at least we're no longer stalled and, and that's a huge Uh, change.
1: You uh, mentioned uh, Mark Montgomery. He's kind enough to join us on a fairly regular basis to give the audience updates on where they stand. I would agree with you. Extraordinary commission that has produced uh, just a a series of positive uh, outcomes to to drive uh, the cyber ga- uh, case forward and indeed doing so in a bipartisan way, which is absolutely uh, critical. Um, let me take you to the question, just back up a second, uh, Dimitri, and get your sense on ransomware. It's great that Ann Neuberger held the meeting, but the Chinese and Russians weren't part of it. Um, you know How effective can this kind of a dialogue be if the two leading perpetrators or among the leading perpetrators or nations from which these... Uh, attacks emanate, whether with tacit approval of the government or not, are not part of the discussion.
2: So, so th- this was a summit of the willing. Um, this was a summit of countries that are impacted by ransomware in severe fashion, that are willing to lend their resources, whether it's law enforcement resources or military intelligence um, or, or financial regulator resources to the problem. Um, it seems to me that it, it was a right decision not to invite Russia um, or China uh, to, to the summit because they have not demonstrated so far that they're willing to actually deal with this issue. So you didn't wanna have a derailment of the entire summit because uh, right. of involvement of parties that uh, are so far not helpful contributors to solving the problem. It is important to engage them. Um, I think um, the administration is correct to engage them privately on a bilateral basis where you can have very frank conversation and hopefully deliver even some significant threats uh, if, if action is not taken perhaps augmented with carrots um, to um, um, offer them um, something in return for mediation of their behavior. Russia is the most important actor. That's where the majority of the ransomware kingpins reside. Um, China does have some ransomware criminals that uh, actually moonlight for the state as well, but but they're a small part of the problem. So I I would not lump Russia and China into the same boat uh, on this particular issue. Um, once we solve Russia, we can go deal with with other countries um, where ransomware also is present, but dealing with Russia in and of itself would be a massive victory. So, no, I I think um, they were absolutely correct to get countries on board that are interested in doing something much much easier to get consensus that way. um, And we should not be rewarding Russia by inviting them to the summit until they show that they're willing to change their behavior.
1: Um, What should... Uh, be next on uh, the agenda, right? I mean, we have an enormous amount of activity that's going on. We talked about the 24-hour uh, notification, right, is where CISA uh, is looking at in terms of mandatory cyber attack reporting. Uh, NIST, uh, the National Institutes of Standard and, uh, Standards and Technology, um, you know, a, a new director is facing confirmation, uh, Lori uh, Locascio, um, a, as well as setting criteria for Internet of Things, right? That's sort of at the more tactical level at the strategic level? What are the next set of big priorities, Dimitri, need to be?
2: I think we still don't have the right model for how do we do the most important job that government has, which is to defend itself. Um, When you look at CISA, um, it is making great strides. It now has authority to hunt on federal government networks. It has authority to um, demand certain changes if, if there's a known vulnerability, for example, demand that the agencies patch those vulnerabilities within a very short period of time. But I think we're gonna to need to figure out a model where we move beyond that. You know, In most companies, you have one chief information security officer that is responsible for the security of the entire company. You don't have a CISO inside of the marketing organization protecting the marketing department, or inside of sales protecting the sales department, right? There's one throat to choke, one person responsible for the security and one team that's executing on that strategy. And today, of course, we have you know, a sprinkling of, of different CISOs and, and different security organizations within the government uh, with different capabilities, different standards for technologies, different approaches, and, and that's just not working. It's completely broken. And I think some sort of centralization um, down the road, this is not gonna happen overnight, but CISA emerging perhaps as an independent agency out of, out of GHS. Um, that has the mandate to basically provide secure, security for all government, except maybe DOD and the intelligence community, which have their own needs and, and specialized requirements um, is, is where we need to start moving towards. Um, and um, just like GSA manages all buildings for the federal government, right? We don't have a separate building management system right. inside each agency, just like we, we have more or less centralization on protection services. and and so forth, we need to do the same thing for cybersecurity. Um, The current model will not work. And uh, it's gonna gonna be challenging to get there because you have a lot of parochial interests, a lot of budgets uh, that are invested in in the existing model. Uh, But when our agencies are getting hacked left and right, when you look at the impact of the SolarWinds hack on the government, you've had DHS itself being hacked, you have DOJ suffering and devastating, Hack of some very very sensitive information being hacked from U.S. Attorney's offices, the Treasury Department being hacked. Uh, uh, it is it, it, just not sustainable, and um, uh, we have to change that. And and right now we really need to make sure that CISA lists up to its name, that it's a true cybersecurity agency with a mandate to defend at least the government. You know, right. I'm not even talking about the private sector. Um, that that's a much uh, thorny issue, but the government itself has to be defended by one or at most two entities, Cyber Command for DOD, um, CISA for the civilian government.
1: There is uh, a lot of concern that the Defense Department is much more interested in buying new hardware. We've heard from uh, cyber official, uh, officials, not just uh, Nick Shalon, but others, Chris Cleary, uh, who've said, look, you know, for each incremental dollar the military services have, they want to buy capability, not recognizing that actually they have really glaring uh, software uh, and hardware cyber vulnerabilities that need to be addressed, right? That undermines the efficacy of the force. From from your standpoint, what's the level of attention that's required on that? Because it doesn't matter if we have the best fighters, best tanks, best ships, if you can somehow uh, take them offline, uh, whether they're underway or in the middle of a military operation or back at their home bases, what's the kind of approach, strategic approach we need to doing this and doing it fast? Because the amount of money is probably measured in the billions of dollars across the department each year for like five years. And that could make all the difference in the world ultimately.
2: Well, I, th- I think there are two issues here. So one is the cyber issue, and I'm glad to see that the government's actually made a lot of progress in the last few years, focusing on the security of the weapon platforms from a cyber perspective, demanding certain standards from the defense contractors when they're building new platforms. Still a long way to go there, but great progress has been made. But there's one issue that I think, and I say this as, as a cyber guy that, that has spent 25 plus years working on cyber, that is more important than cyber, and, and that is the semiconductor issue. And, and I feel like the conversation on this issue, um, even though we've we've had a lot of conversations in the last couple of years, is still not where it needs to be. Um, the, the The reality is that our supply of semiconductors is incredibly w- vulnerable right now. One, because so much of it um, is being built in Taiwan, which is 90 miles off the coast of China. And should something happen with, with, uh, in terms of conflict between China and Taiwan, uh, we're, we're going to be basically back in the stone ages without a supply of semiconductors. But uh, even more importantly, um, um, China is building tremendous capacity. So we're more and more going to be relying on China for semiconductors, uh, which is even more of a disaster, both from a uh, security of that supply chain uh, in terms of the chips actually being uh, without back doors, but also just China being able to cut us off uh, f- for um, military purposes or any other um, purpose um, um, that the chips serve in our economy, which is pr- pretty much everywhere. So we need our own independent supply of semiconductors for those reasons, um, but but the problem is too big for us to solve it on our own. And, and this is something that I think we have not come to terms with that $52 billion, which is the current plan, um, Uh, in the bill um, that was passed in the Senate that is now stalled unfortunately in the House is simply not enough. It's a drop in the bucket compared to the hundreds of billions that would be required to remove that dependence on Asia for semiconductor production. And what we need um, given that we won't have the money uh, to spend it all ourselves is work with allies. This is the one issue where you have tremendous interest in Europe, in South Korea, in Japan, in Israel and lots of other countries to invest their own dollars into semiconductor production. So we desperately need to come up with an alliance where we will say, we're coming forward, we're investing 52 billion in advanced logic system. South Korea invests another 50 in memory. Japan invests in analog and so forth. And you go around the the world and you can come up with an independent supply chain that is distributed that won't be in one location, which actually will be good for the security of the global supply chain, uh, but you will diversify it from this one region of the world um, where you have so many problems, both geopolitical but also earthquakes and tsunamis and lots of other things that can interfere with that production. And that to me is the number one national security issue that we face today uh, that will have
1: huge implications for the US-China relationship uh, more broadly. Uh, all of this, uh, by the way, Dimitri, is a demonstration why you're a first-rate policy b- uh, brain, whether at Silverado or whether uh, at uh, sice uh, Why sice for the Alperovitch uh, Institute, and what do you hope to accomplish? Because uh, if knowing you uh, means you have very ambitious goals uh, for the new institute.
2: So, so one of the most critical things we, we have uh, as a problem in cybersecurity is the workforce sh- shortage. We just don't have enough good people that are going to this field, and particularly people that understand not just the technical bits and bytes, but understand the policy challenges, because I do believe we're now at a critical juncture where technology alone uh, has only gotten us so far, and the next phase of the breakthroughs will be in the policy arena. We need more people that understand cyber policy. That was the impetus for creating the Alperovitch Institute for Cybersecurity Studies at Johns Hopkins SIS. SICE, of course, is one of the top uh, international affairs schools in the nation. Um, The Institute will be led by the great Dr. Thomas Ridd, one of the premier academics that has an incredible pulse on what is happening in the real world and is able to bring that real world perspective to the students. So we will have, uh, starting next fall, a master's program, uh, a PhD program to build the next generation of scholars and instructors uh, to make sure that this is a durable endeavor and an executive education program, sort of a compressed uh, week long or so program for senior leaders in private sector, senior military leaders that wanna get a crash course on cyber and cyber policy um, issues that are critical to their job. Um, The application deadline is December 15th. So just coming up in a little um, less than two months. And uh, we are uh, looking forward to having a great cohort of of students come next fall. uh, And also for for listeners out there that uh, wanna engage with us on guest lecturing and courses, or even being adjunct professors to teach a course or two Uh, we'd love to work with you. So please reach out uh, uh, and contact
1: us. Congratulations again, uh, Dimitri. uh, Well done. Uh, And we look forward to telling the story of the uh, Institute as you guys put it together. Uh, And certainly um, you guys will be a repository of talent and and we look forward to tapping tapping you and also uh, tapping anyone else uh, from the team there. Thanks so very, very much and, and best of luck on the new Institute. Thank you so much. And a word from our sponsors, General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control and FinContieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. And joining us now is John Cofrancesco of Fortress Information Technology. John, welcome back to the program.
3: Well, thank you so much for having me back.
1: It's uh, always uh, great. I know that, uh, John, I'm going to spark PTSD among our audience where there's a little bit of fatigue associated with the conversation uh, about uh, supply chain cybersecurity. Obviously, the last administration was focused on that through CMMC, the cybersecurity maturity model certification process. Now, the new administration is looking at at, uh, a solution and how it's going to approach the problem. What do we know now? And why is it so important to try to get this right and get it right as quickly as possible?
3: You know, Vago, I uh, I feel you on on folks getting the PTSD and I would advise them to buckle in because this is a subject that is gonna continue certainly for years, perhaps for decades. And that isn't to say that we as a country won't rally around one solution or another. It's rather to say that the process of decoupling with China is going to take a long time. It's gonna be very complicated. And as I was reminded this weekend at the Navy Ball by a a very senior leader an admiral within the Navy, that it's been a long time since America has faced a a real great power adversary. I mean, if you look at the leadership outside of the legislative branch, and maybe with the exception of the president, every leader in the DOD ostensibly was was a very young person or not in the DOD at all when Russia was still a great threat to us. So We're going through a major transformation in thinking. We're going to go through a major transformation in how we approach this issue. And I think we're going to find folks at every level that uh, really feel the bite of the fact that security comes with a cost. And because of who we're facing now in China, that we're going to have to bear that cost.
1: Um, How do we need how do we. So how does this needle end up moving, and do we have any indication where the administration is going? As I discussed with Dimitri uh, in the first half of the show, right, we were talking about uh, the new NIST uh, standards. Uh, we're talking uh, about CISA, uh, your new NIST standards on IOT and E and the Internet of Things, Uh, Obviously, that affects all of us. There's CISA looking at a 24-hour window of reporting, uh, right? I mean, the self-reporting period, uh, you and I were uh, at uh, a conference where uh, the issue was being discussed with some horror uh, by uh, the cyber community, knowing like, hey, the clock is really ticking if you uh, discover uh, a vulnerability yourself and how quickly you have to report it or breach you know what's what's the right approach and do we have any consensus on where this administration is going to fall when it comes to uh, supply chain security well i think a
3: consensus is starting to form and frankly i think a consensus across administrations so from the last into this one is now clear that this is a major subject everybody's going to be paying attention to it of all parties and everybody's sort of on the same train when it says hey we need to get get on with this i think where folks aren't aligned is to say well how Do we get on with this? And there isn't absolute clarity coming out of the administration as to where they're going to go, with the exception of the fact that there are going to be new requirements. And I think it's worth noting here. If you you wind back the clocks to to 1939, uh, then uh, General Marshall takes over as chief of the army, turns around to his staff and he says, hey, we are ill prepared. We have an army that can't fight this war. By the way, the day he becomes chief of the army is the day Adolf Hitler invades Poland. So we knew war was coming at that point. We're now looking at an era where China has essentially invalidated 40 years worth of missile defense work. We have to decouple and you have leaders throughout the DOD saying, hey, we have to get this back together and more broadly than the DOD uh, in, in the government writ large, hey, we need to get this together. So it's going to be a little bit of, of tumult to, to get there. I would note that George General Marshall ultimately fired all but two of the generals in the army before the start of World War II, uh, and we're going to find... Uh, maybe not on a personnel level, but certainly in a policy level, major changes of that ilk before we're really on the same page as a country.
1: From, from your standpoint, as a critical eye, um, are the services starting to get it right? And is the Air Force starting to get it right? Because there's been a lot of debate and discussion about whether or not uh, the Pentagon and its leadership are whistling past the graveyard here.
3: Well, I think this is a really difficult question to answer because in different parts of the Pentagon, uh,
1: you know, there's different
3: perspectives. There's certainly areas where we're still dealing with hubris, uh, that they're still fighting uh, yesteryear's war, but I will credit the Pentagon. By and large, folks have turned an eye to the real threat that is China, uh, and they're beginning to make the right moves. In fact, you know, just recently, we began a major project with a very important part of the Air Force to begin going through their cyber supply chain to identify where the vulnerabilities are. That is something that probably would not have happened two years ago, uh, and may have only just squeaked by a year ago, but today they were swift to move and ready to do it because everybody understands, or certainly the majority of the folks in the Pentagon understand, that the decoupling is real, the threat is real, and the next war doesn't begin with a bomb over Pearl Harbor. It begins with a nerd pushing up his or her glasses somewhere in Beijing and hitting the enter button on a pre-programmed list of cyber attacks. So. We need to prepare for that. We are beginning to prepare for that, and and I think it's worthwhile to comment on Mr. Shalon and and kind of his protest and and, and what he's done. First, to credit him, that is a very brave thing to do. Uh, Certainly, there are areas where I agree with him, and and most of the market agrees with him, and then there are other areas where I don't agree with him. But one thing is key, uh, and I'll probably repeat it here a few times, competition is the answer to this question. Over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, we have seen a reduction in the number of companies who serve the DOD, certainly of the big primes. There has been a coalescence around just a handful. Uh, You see that both on the M&A side, companies being merged together. And in terms of who's winning these contracts, if we're going to go out, if we're going to win this thing, we need real innovation. That means real competition. And that means the DOD is going to have to change its perspective on from whom they're buying and how they acquire. So I think Mr. Shallan probably suffered that a great deal. I think he probably also suffered some of that uh, sort of slow move culture that the Pentagon uh, has, has in some places. And I think that our leaders would be wise to heed his advice in some areas. And I think in other areas, particularly uh, you know, around the willingness and the, and the effort of the folks there, uh, I think they, they should bolster that because I think the will is there. I think it's now a question of how.
1: Um, let me ask you uh, one one last question, which is uh, a question that I've been asking senior leaders. There's, uh, you know, I, I, I uh, they answer me. The question is whether we are uh, moving in as organized a fashion to address uh, some of these vulnerabilities. You and I have talked about uh, components. There are chips that are in very advanced weapon systems that are carrying the parts number of major prime contractors that are that are you know, very problematic Chinese hardware. Um, same with software, right? The conference uh, that uh, you and I uh, attended, you, you know, I mean, it, it. somebody, I can't remember if it was you uh, or who it was uh, who said, hey, you know, if, if you see something written in Cyrillic or Chinese on these open source uh, software uh, venues, you know, you probably shouldn't be using it. Well, I, I think a lot of people do use it. I mean, one of the reasons the Chinese and the Russians write that code is they know it's really tempting and somebody is going to grab it and, and end up using it. Right. How how well do we understand the problem and how far away are we ad- from addressing it, John? And what will it cost us? Because when you talk to people in the community, in the in the cyber uh, and in the uh, software side of things, in the hardware side, they will say, it's, it's not a lot of money, but each available dollar, as we've heard from so many people, is put against added capability, not against, you know, something as mundane as, you know, software uh, and chips, right? W- w- where are we? Where do we need to be? Well, we're at a really interesting spot on this level. Uh,
3: you know, at a national level, in terms of chips, in terms of bringing back manufacturing, it is beginning to happen. Uh, two major, major foundries are being built uh, by a Taiwanese company, uh, out west, uh, two American-built companies are also being placed out west. So here, in the next few years, we will have internal chip capacity, largely to be able to support the DoD and some of those other uh, critical infrastructure clients. Uh, but there is no getting around it, and I think this is an important piece to note. And this is one of the things I think Mr. Shalon got right. We are losing. We're losing, and we're losing badly. And and I'll put it in a health analogy. I don't need a doctor to tell uh, you know to tell me if I'm overweight or not. I don't need a scale to know if I'm overweight or not, right? You can look down, look at your fitness and you know whether or not you're overweight or whether or not you're, you're fit. This is very much the situation here at the DOD. The DOD does not yet have the hard numbers to be able to say, as a matter of fact, this percentage or that percentage of our supply chain is compromised, but they can look down uh, and, and take a gander at their supply chain fitness. And anecdotally, everybody knows that we are way out of shape here and in a really bad way. So over the next few years, what I expect will happen is that we will begin to develop some of those hard numbers. So we'll get that BMI, we'll get that blood pressure. It's gonna come back, it's not gonna look good. Uh, And then we will move swiftly as as a country to get get this into a better space. And I, I am heartened by one thing, leaders on both political parties of the farthest ends of persuasions get it. This has to be done now. This is truly a great power struggle. And we will lose. We will lose if we do not get on the same page now. You're beginning to see that out of Congress. Certainly you see that out of the majority of the DOD and the other major agencies. And I think there's some questions. Do you do this as one sort of Uber agency, a a, a cybercom, super cybercom uh, that kind of answers it for the entire federal government, or you do this at an agency by agency level? I think there's arguments for both, but no question here that the sheet music needs to be the same for everybody. And we need to get that written here swiftly.
1: And I can't imagine a better overall program uh, than today's for National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Uh, nothing like uh, scaring the little living crap out of the audience in order to focus uh, the attention. John, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me and, and really grateful to be able to participate.
0: From cyberspace to outer space, Northrop Grumman cyber technology spans all domains and all aspects of national security. We are delivering the next generation of cyber capabilities that protect our nation and its allies. Visit northropgrumman.com forward slash cyber to learn more.